So at any rate, good to have all of you here today. We're picking up in our teaching from where we left off. So we're in 2 Kings, and let's go ahead and enter into that once again. We're picking it up in brevity in chapter 9. We made it a little bit beyond there. We'll go back and tag some points. As I am moving to teach on this, one of the things that I want to be able to say is that the Lord, through the scriptures that we teach, may be touching hearts to respond. So the reason that I say that is that when the teaching concludes, I have somebody who does the benediction, and that's basically sealing in what it is you've heard, comparatively the notes that God has inscribed on your heart. It may be, though, that in this time, we've had this, I believe, an extraordinary outpouring of the Spirit, touching hearts, saying, join me, join us in the waters of baptism. And so I think that I'm fairly accurate, some 23 just this month, give or take a few. And so I don't want to discount God not doing that every week. But I say it because we want to be prepared for decisions to be made. And I just never know. I have been as surprised as many of you have. But we do have a baptismal over there, and there will be some brothers that already have been assigned for that. And I want that to be something that you pray as the service moves, and that maybe you even know someone that your voice, your heart, your relationship with them would be provocative to come to church and to hear of the Lord at church and then to respond to him before the church is taken out. You want them to be with you. Okay, there we go. Coming back into 2 Kings, this is what we need to know. And it's interesting because much of what also that was posted in Romans today has a parallel to the story that we have been reading. It's not simply a story in the context of what some presume a novel or fable. Fable is attributed to the Greek heritage, a novel very often to what we would call the, the uh, normative or European concept. But this is neither fiction nor is it fable. It's history that is recorded that is intended to give a picture of principles that the Lord teaches us through the New Testament. It's rather graphic, and God makes no apologies with regard to that. We have come to view the graphics, if you would, of imagination through what is presented in movies as a negative, because usually it is. It's either graphic violence, it's graphic sexuality, it's graphic perversion voiced from the lips of actors and actresses. So these things are, in fact, expressions of the human condition, the plight of the fleshly expression. And we've all had, at times, our own testings and trials, indulgences, rescues. And so in this, the Lord is coming true about what he said he would do to those who have been, common vernacular today, bad actors. 
Now, it's not necessarily wrong to say or imply that we have a part to play. Therefore, we as well could be presumed to be actors. The question is, is the part that we are playing, is it what God has put before us to indeed be as individuals unique in their personalities, talents and gifts that he's given to us? Or are we, for instance, on the other side or have been in which by the Greek term hypocrites, we are playing against ourselves. We're one way with some and another way with others. And God says, to that extent, I will bring those things into judgment. Okay, so we're not in the text yet, but what is it that is to give us comfort concerning that reality? Because this is what it says, that there will be a judge, and it's not you. That doesn't mean you're not responsible for adjudicating fairly, but you cannot unless you have a relationship with Jesus Christ. Because the sins that you are guilty of, that I am guilty of as well, have been adjudicated. It's been dismissed because the very God that can judge me has judged his son, Jesus Christ, by whom I have a relationship with. And therefore, it is passed from me because it went to him. And so what I do now is I walk according to his word. And when I have those times in which my convictions fail me, when I've listened to the enemy regarding condemnation, which is not mine, I have an advocate that I can speak to, Jesus Christ. I have his spirit within me who can enable me to move from the bad choice, ultimately to be reconciled within the moment that I say, Lord, forgive me. I didn't mean to say that. I didn't mean to do it. I didn't mean not to do it. But in fact, Lord, in these things, which I am either well-disciplined in or quite stupid about, you have promised that I am forgiven, not on my merit, but on what you did. So this historical account is about God cleaning camp. He's going to do it with the northern tribe, and he's going to do it with the southern tribe. They're the ones that occupy Jerusalem. The others are in Samaria. That's the 10. That's the larger chunk of them. And they both have had kings that have been bad actors for too long, taking their cues from a world system that we know less still can find ourselves equally influenced by. You can read about it. You can see it in our government. You can see it in the persuasion of culture upon those who can be bought with subsidies of some kind. Do this for us, we'll do this for you. Make much of this, little of that, we'll reward you. And what happens is that corruption enters into the institutions that God has commissioned to establish civility and reverence and great expectations that we are to enjoy, not to grieve. How many of you can say, I'm grieving, I'm grieving? Most of us can, because it's not our Father's world. He told us that, though. In fact, we're purposely left here to do the work of God until he takes us out of this world.
And so that's a good hope as well. Why is that a good hope? Because things are getting hard down here. We're living almost from election cycle to election cycle, and we're finding ourselves pretty frustrated with the whole deal. But God has a cycle, and it's called a rescue. It's called a deliverance. Once he delivers you here by a confession of faith, a public declaration that you're not a part of that bad actor's camp, then you with the church live in the expectation of his soon and coming return, which is deliverance for us. Here we go in this. The main character in this would be equivalent to what we learned earlier on in our studies of judges, a judge. And the reason that God is going to appoint this man is because he has military bearing. He doesn't buckle easily under threat. And he's learned how to take commands and to obey them to the satisfaction of his king. But what we see in this account is that he has been informed by a great prophet in the land, Elisha, that he would be anointed. And in his anointing as a former military commander, he was going to have the task of cleaning the perversion and the cultural corruption off of the face of the earth in that season. We may say, God, our God, is a violent God. Well, that's not the way that we should presume that word works. First of all, he's a righteous and holy God. And what he does is he executes judgment. He is not simply an executioner. He allows judgment to be executed. Men make messes in their policing of people. We've seen that. One of the biggest messes that we've made as men, as women, communities, is we say, you know what? That's just a little bit too hard. For the judgment of God that he would not tolerate in his love everything that everybody wants to do at any time in whatever measure they want to do it. Because that's not righteousness. That is not the exacting standards of a God who has expectations which he will not defy of himself, nor will he allow us to get away with it. So let's pick it up. I think I can wrap this up somewhat quickly. We're going to look um, chapter 9. This is the name of the man who basically has been presumed to do God's will. God knew he would do it. He elected him to do it. He anointed him to do it through Elisha, who sent a messenger to do it obediently. You're seeing all of these connections of the disposition of a man and where he was at, and God found him to be faithful in what he would be required to do. Elisha the prophet called, the one, of his, uh, called one of the sons of the prophets and said to him, Get yourself ready. Take this flask of oil in your hand and go to Ramoth Gilead. Now, when you arrive, this is chapter 9, verse 1. When you arrive at that place, look there for Jehu, the son of Jehoshaphat. 
the son of Nimshi, and go in and make him rise up from among his associates. Take him to an inner room. What's going to happen? There's going to be a commissioning that will take place. Very often, it's very often the commissioning that you receive from God is in an inner room. It's your heart. It's what God has told you to do in your heart to do, and God keeps at bay those that might either persuade you not to or find it unbelievable that somebody like yourself could be commissioned by God. This was a big man, but among his associates, he's pulled from them. Because God worked mysteriously back then, confidentially, because he's not trying to tip anybody off, very often you can hear God's voice to you in him pulling you aside. When you saw all of these wonderful young men and women up here, they've been pulled aside by God. There's an election going on, but it's no different because as we look at you, guess what we make the assumption of? In the same way, you're being elected by God to do an extraordinary work for him. You get to see what we know is happening. We, from this perspective, get to see what we know is happening. God's pulled us aside. He's done so in confidentiality because he knows that you will obey. You'll get the job done. You will deliver a message that cleanses. You will take care of those whom in your life and under your influence suffer from the consequence of a perverted understanding of God. You will be one who doesn't per se judge one to their condemnation, but you can accurately judge someone to their conviction to say, you're right. As you've listened to me, as you have understanding of me, the way that I've gone is not the way that I should be going any further. Thanks for taking the time to clarify that. Thanks for helping me see Jesus in your life when you've also been transparent concerning choices that you've made contrary to the way God wants you to live your life. And that's the way that God adds to himself individuals that are purposed to be a part of the church and this is no small thing of God. The time is drawing near in which we collectively with even a greater work outside of even our vision and mind will be drafted into heaven in the rapture because things are not getting better here. But we're not to be alarmed. We're to take note wisely. God is going to clean up the world. He'll do so by a judgment and a final confrontation with an enemy who by no means is his match, Satan. These things are in place. Our eyes are on Israel. As the eyes of the enemies were on Israel here and as Israel messed up pretty consistently, God will not let them alone either, both either to destruction nor to perversion. He will correct them. He will correct our nation too. The best nation that you can be a part of is God's nation right here the house of the Lord, the place where he will protect you. 
Jehu is given this commission, and with it, you're going to see that he will take it very seriously. The young prophet voiced in four will obey what Elisha told him to do, anoint Jehu and scram. Very often, commands of obedience have an expeditious punctuation. Do what it is I tell you to do. Do it quickly and get away. Part of it is that God is protecting us. He doesn't want us ensnared. And ultimately what he's quite capable of seeing through, and that's all of the peripherals of assignments that he's giving, and ultimately the things that as well could influence us from staying specifically to the charge. He had one thing to do, and so he did it. He takes off. The argument then becomes something that Jehu will have to have with his commanders, the ones that are under him, subordinate to him, as he is also subordinate to a king. But now he's subordinating himself to the king of kings. And he is taking note of his commission as one given by a great man of God, which is Elisha. And so moving over to this next verse, which is important, this is the word that he has received, and that is, Thus says the Lord God of Israel, I have anointed you king over the people of the Lord over Israel. He's going to have the northern kingdom. You shall strike down the house of Ahab, your master, that I may avenge the blood of my servants, the prophets, and the blood of all the servants of the Lord at the hand of Jezebel. Jezebel is the, rem the remaining member of it ungodly marriage, a terrible marriage between Ahab and her. She was a wicked woman, deceitful, selfish. She was malicious, just wicked. She influenced her husband to, rather than surrender his life to the Lord, he surrendered his soul to false prophets and a false faith in a religious system that had nothing to offer. Nothing. And so Ahab's house is going to be judged and all members of his house are going to be judged. I had a brother that connects with us. There are actually several, but I'm surprised at times when that connection to this word is texted to me and it was oh wow did you mean does this it could it be possibly that that I'm under judgment I said it's not the same judgment all of us are under conviction but we're not under judgment to a death that would forever separate us from God we're under conviction and we're always under correction there are people who wickedly have nothing to do with God and we know them because they have no fruit to bear for God. They may have the personality, they may have talents and gifts, but without God they've got nothing that will get them into heaven. 
they've got only one thing, and that is, unfortunately, a life to be condemned forever, in eternity, separated from God, and in eternal punishment. Some would say, is that the way God works? Well, he's put things in order. He has made all of us actually eternal people. What he did was he limited our tenure on earth and he separated man from ever being able to live indefinitely on earth. You remember that he booted Adam and Eve out that they might not taste of the fruit of life. He had to separate them from that and that they would ultimately experience a punishment, a consequence, which was death, which did come many, 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 many years down the road from our life expectancy, but it's the same penalty. The wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus, our Lord. And that's the promise. The wages of sin is death. What did God do for us? We see a judgment here that's pending. What did God do for us? Well, he took that death sentence upon himself that we would be exempt by the blood that he shed for us. We don't deserve it. We've done nothing that merited it. It was God's love demonstrated in that while we were yet still sinners, he died for the ungodly. That's the message of the gospel. It moves further into the promises of God. Jehu right now is simply a picture of a man whose heart is right before the Lord and his personality is perfect for what he's got to do because he will not be persuaded to do anything less than to judge fairly by the word of the Lord the house of corruption, of perversion. He's not taking things into his own hands. His hands are being used sovereignly by God to execute vengeance. It is not something that he's coming up with on his own. It is that which the Spirit of God, through the prophecy of both Elijah, many chapters back, and Elisha, have pronounced. There's going to be a judgment on the wickedness of these kings, and in particular, this last king and his wife and his kids who have all contributed to the perversion of those whom I have appointed. So it's a hard message to them, but it's good news for those who have been violated. There are people who have power that have violated those whom have been their charge. God wants you to know that. Violations are not new at all. And we're going to find series of them. Because in these latter days, lawlessness will abound. And when there's lawlessness, there are consequences to the innocent. And that's a sad thing. But we're not to give up in a state of sadness. We are to take the same courage that was appointed 
for those men who in succession to leadership said, I've got it. I've been there. I know what you want. I'll get it done. So help me, God. God has something for you to do. So help you, God. And he will. But it's not per se, rendering your judgment upon those whom God still right now is working patiently with. It's interesting. We get so frustrated in those who are missing it. We want there to be change immediately, and yet even you and I can't presume that we have consecutively a perfect day, let alone a week or a month or two. How does God work that out? Because we're here that's how he works it out. When you took communion, God just worked it out of you. Whatever was in you, if you took communion with sincerity and seriousness, he worked that out of you. You come here with the plague. God has the opportunity that in whatever that may be, in your bodily affliction, to work it out of you. If in faith that's something you're saying, this is important for me, Lord. I sit before you. The words that you have given through the book of Isaiah, that by your stripes I'm healed. Lord, I'm, I'm needing a touch from you. You took the affliction on yourself, and I am afflicted in myself. Lord, heal me in my mind, in my spirit, in this body, that I can perform for you in the day that you give me, the hour that remains, something that most notably pleases you. No one else may even see it. But if you see me and I see you, Lord, I'm open for that. Jehu is that guy. Jehu answers the questions of his men who say, what did that messenger say to you? Mm. Nothing much. Don't worry about it. Wait a minute. Tell us. And he did. I'm king. You may say with confidence, I'm a child of God. What? How dare you say you're, what am I? Well, <laughs> if you don't know the Lord, you are going to be left behind and you are not a child of his now and you want to be. You need an adoption immediately. You're trying all of these other things culturally. You need an adoption because you will die in sin and trespass. You're talking fighting language. I'm not fighting anything. The Lord fights my battles, but he has fought for you. Surrender. Surrender. That's where Jehu basically concludes in that context. And now what we see him doing is he's on the march of going after Joram. In this case, in verse 14, Jehu, the son of Jehoshaphat, the son of Nimshi, conspired against Joram. Now, Joram had been defending Ramoth, Gilead, so that's a battle area. We already saw where he came from. And he and all Israel against Hazael, king of Syria. Hazael is an adversarial king. So we have an adversarial king against Israel, but we've got a bad king over Israel. And Jehu is the one that is going to systematically work with where he's at and what he's to do, and God is with him on it. And so it says that in Jezreel, King Joram had returned to Jezreel to recover from the wounds which the Syrians had inflicted on him. And when he fought with um, Hazael, king of Syria, so we already mentioned him back earlier, 
Hazael was the one that broke the heart of Elisha because he was revealed as such a wicked and terrible man and what he would ultimately do to the innocent of Israel. If you are so minded, let one leave or escape, let no one leave or escape from the city to go and tell it to Jezreel. And so Jehu rode in a chariot, went to Jezreel for Joram, was laid up there, and Ahaziah, king of Judah, had come down to see Joram. And you're seeing now guys that are going to basically be judged by God through Jehu. Now a watchman stood on the tower in Jezreel and saw the company of Jehu as he came. Repetitive to some of you, I know. And so Joram said, get a horseman and send him to meet him and let him say, is it for peace? This is important because generation after generation is striving for peace. In fact, during my generation, that's the word that we use to greet one another. Peace. I hated it. I don't know why. I think it was just being in a military family. I never got into it. My contemporaries did. That was like sixth grade, seventh grade, eighth grade. Um, peace. I always would attribute it to Eisenhower and um, Churchill. This wasn't peace. This was victory. Churchill would be saying, victory. Because there's no peace ultimately without victory over a man's life, a woman's life, a child's life, without saving faith, which is the free gift God has given. All we have to do is ask for it. So I wouldn't be surprised if this comes out again. Uh, another generation that's saying this is going to help. But it's not this sign that's going to help. It's that sign that is intended to help. That sign. Yeah, it's not even that sign. I love that. That's not a Tweety Bird. I'm not even saying it's the accurate representation of the spirit. But we've come to know from the 60s generation, 70s generation, that's always had a link to the spirit of God descending upon those whom are his and by whom he will empower. That's why I keep it. It's sentimental to me. But it could be any dove. But it's not going to be a turkey. That comes in November. And that's on my table. And I eat that. So this is right now something in which systematically he's saying, who's on my side? So the bad king is sending out dignitaries. Find out what this guy's about. Are you for peace? You better come on my side, because I'm not. Sends out another one. You for peace? You better come on my side, because I'm not. Jesus said that he would come and he would divide a house, a nation, a city. He would divide your heart, and it's not on the premise of peace. He would divide on the premise of truth. He comes in and executes with a sword. No one can escape it. That's why what we want to do is to say, Lord, you got me. You've got me. You've judged fairly. I've tried to outrun you. You've judged fairly. And so the sword of the Spirit is the Word of God. And so what we do is we handle it with great expectation, not on it killing us, but on it rendering to us truth in which we can have these hearts which accumulate debris and junk. They become cisterns of perversion and we can be cleansed by the reading 
of the Word of God. We can be cleansed by the work of the Spirit, even as He is akin to a washing of water, a flood, a torrent that flows from us. And so these that have been dispatched to find out what Jehu's up to, they make a choice. Uh, do I go back to that guy? Or do I go with this guy? And that's the deal. What guy are you going back to? What person will you go back to who's saying, offer these terms of peace? Come back to me and see what we can do. And it's a time where you just say, I don't want your peace. And I don't want you to have a piece of me anymore. You've got my mind. You've got influence over my choices in a manner that is not honoring to God. I'm going with Jehu. I'm going with Jesus. That's who I'm going with. The one who's offering me in this moment a saving choice. And if I go back to you, I'm a dead man. If I go with him, I'm a delivered person. And so these watchmen, they, they go, bye-bye, king. No more peace signs. I'm going. No peace out, because there's not going to be peace. And, so, and that's a new term. That's, that that kind of got me. I, could, I never heard of that one, but I like that better than peace. Peace out. At any rate, you can ponder that. And so the chariots are made ready. Ultimately, there is going to be now this confrontation with a wicked woman. I'm going to jump right down there. Joram said, make ready, and his chariot was made ready. And then Joram, king of Israel, and Ahaziah, king of Judah, went out each to his chariot, and they went out to meet Jehu and met him on the property of Naboth, the Jezreelite. So the two bad kings are going to meet what has now been the appointment of this man, Jehu, as a righteous warrior. And this is what will happen. It happened when Joram saw Jehu that he said, Is it peace, Jehu? And so he answered, what peace? As long as the harlotries of your mother Jezebel and her witchcraft are so many, there's not going to be peace. I didn't come for that. I'm not bargaining for that. It's just this clear. There's a judgment that's pending. The world needs to know in the love of God, but in the passion of consequence, there is going to be a tough decision that will render you either eternally with God forever or eternally from God forever. The toughness isn't because God's hard to decide for. It's because your flesh is stone hard. So Joram turned around and fled and said to Ahaziah, Treachery, Ahaziah! So he's trying to outrun, basically, the judgment. No one's going to outrun the judgment of God. You can be taken from the judgment of God with the church, the rapture. No one left behind outruns the judgment of God. Those that do aren't outrunning it. They're actually running into the strong tower of the Lord. There will be those who left behind because they didn't accept the Lord in the time in which he evacuated the church they will have an opportunity to say, Lord, save me. I was wrong. 
I got left behind because I was stupid, because I was stone cold hearted. Forgive me. I want to be in your kingdom. In faith, save me. And they will be, but they will be hunted like dogs. Jezebel is going to be eaten by dogs. It will be her judgment. You may say, fair? It has nothing to do with fairness. It has to do with judgment. And it has to do with the fact that she wickedly contrived things even worse than her fate, torturous things, abominable things. She was just flat out wicked. Jehu drew his bow with full strength in verse 24 and shot Jehoram between his arms and the arrow came out at his heart and he sank down in his chariot. First judgment, he's gone. Then Jehu said to Bictar, his captain, pick him up and throw him into the tract of the field of Naboth, the Jezreelite. For remember, when you and I were riding together behind Ahab, his father, that the Lord said this burden was upon him. And so basically in the field that Ahab, Jezebel's husband, stole because Jezebel told him how he could get that land that was not going to be turned over to him. He had Naboth killed. This man now, it will be his burial plot. Judgment fairly rendered. The place that he had stolen under Ahab would now be his burial plot. Surely I saw yesterday the blood of Naboth and the blood of his son, says the Lord, and I will repay you in this plot, says the Lord. Now, therefore, take and throw him on the plot of ground according to the word of the Lord. What's he doing? He's not doing things according to his own will. He's doing it according to the word of the Lord. And you may say, I don't like the imagery. Tough. God isn't trying to make choice based on how convenient it is to your emotions. There is a terror that we ought to be able to say is worthy to be considered. People, my generation in particular, there were some horror movies that came out in my generation. And I remember going to them. And I'd say after coming out of them, I'm never going to one of those things ever again. Because all it was was terror personified, magnified, murderous rampages from terrible people against the innocent. And I said, what in the world possessed me to go? Exactly. Who possessed me to go? It wasn't God. But those things, those things are marginally much smaller than the event in which Antichrist will be persecuting those left behind. And the warfare that will be both sent from heaven to earth in the pending judgment will be nothing comparative to a man's imagination on what it will do. You're seeing things in these days that have marked us in the end times. Massive floodings and earthquakes. And you know what? It's only headlines for like one day. I shared that with the men. It's only headlines for like one day. Thousands and thousands of people are being killed, swept out. China's had mass floodings. India has mass floodings. Portions of Saudi Arabia, mass floodings. Where is it coming from? We're in global warming. How if you have global warming in which all the waters being evaporated are now coming against these areas? And what are these areas? 
these areas are basically pagan strongholds. There's a cleansing work that God is doing, but it's also to remind people time is short. And yes, people are dying by reason of these events. They're cataclysmic. Earthquakes. If you put all of these component pieces together on what is actually happening and the dismissive behavior of the news agencies not at all impressed because they're working to an agenda that has nothing to do with death. They want power. They're partnering up with power that ultimately will be in the hands of one called Antichrist. And all he's interested in doing is coming after God, believing that he can, but he can't. That's why when all of a sudden you hear something that is worthy of attention, worthy of deep prayer and repentance, it dismisses itself from the next news cycle. Because it's not about these events that are cataclysmic. It's about what Satan wants to do, which is to come in with someone who will have the solution. Geopolitically, religiously, he will be able to have the influence because he solves everybody's problems demonically, satanically. Even now, this is what it's pointing to. So he is thrown in judgment into the field. It says that Ahaziah of Judah is killed also. So Jehu, verse 27, pursued him and said, Shoot him also in the chariot. And they shot him at the ascent of Gur, which is by Ibelian. Then he fled to Megiddo and died there. Megiddo is an authentic city made popular during the time of Jesus. The reason being is that Jesus was speaking about a battle. Revelation, we have that very assuredly. And to this day, it will be where the final battle takes place. And his servants carried him in the chariot to Jerusalem and buried him in his tomb with his fathers in the city of David in the seventh year of Joram, the son of Ahab, Ahaziah, had become a king over Judah Closing on verse 30. Now when Jehu had come to Jezreel, Jezreel, Jezebel heard of it and she put paint on her eyes and adorned her head and looked through a window. Cosmetics will not save this woman. She's well beyond her years of beauty. And what it's showing us is that Satan endeavors to make people believe they can fix it. You can be presentable. You can offer yourself in a way that is manageable. God will understand. Just change the way you look. Just change who you are. It'll be fine. God's kind. In fact, you know the scripture. His kindness leads us to repentance. So just, you know, paint the barn. Change things a little bit. It'll be okay. It's too late for that. There's nothing in the area of any kind of superficial cosmology that will allow there to be a change in the disposition of God to those who have rejected him. She's a wicked woman, and what she needed to have done was to get on her face and ask for forgiveness. Would it have been granted to her? Chances are it's too late, because when God's on the march, 
it's too late once his footsteps are heard. That is the pending wrath. And so it simply says, then as Jehu entered at the gate, she said, is it peace, Zimri, murder of your master? And he looked up at the window and said, who is on my side? Who? So two or three eunuchs looked out at him. Then he said, throw her down. So they threw her down and some of her blood splattered on the, the wall and on the horses. And he trampled her under their feet. Basically, two men that evaluated the word of Jehu to the understanding of who Jezebel was and what she had done, and perhaps even had abused them in the position that they held, they tossed her out. They were a part of God's will to render a judgment to her that had been pending to the time that she would not repent for misleading Israel in all of the things of wickedness. And so when he had gone in, it says he ate and drank. And then he said, go now, see to this accursed woman and bury her for she was a king's daughter. And it says, so they went to bury her, but they found no more of her than the skull and the feet and the palms of her hand. And therefore they came back and told him. And he said, this is the word of the Lord, which he spoke by his servant Elijah the Tishbite saying, on the plot of ground, at the place of Jezreel, dogs shall eat the flesh of Jezebel, and the corpse of Jezebel shall be as a refuse on the surface of the field in the plot of Jezreel, so that they shall not say, here lies Jezebel, gone. Her judgment has happened. Her household is yet to follow. Judgment is and has happened to some in the wickedness of their deeds. And if you want to know what God's opinion is about that and why it's not necessarily your chore on this, it's found in Deuteronomy 32, and it quite honestly says, Vengeance is mine, and it is the Lord's. The church never has to excuse itself by taking arms against people and committing acts of violence because vengeance truly is God's. What we do is we take the word of God, which is the sword, and we deliver promises and warnings to people with the high expectation that the choice they make is by how much we are praying that the spirit of God touches them and so in that doomed deeds determined God knows most importantly you know that he is serious and these times indicate we need to be serious and that isn't now go out there and save people that's not your job just shine for the Lord love in the Lord's name share the scriptures when people are wrong, say, you're wrong. I understand how that happened, but you're still wrong. Change. 